it's kind of here and there. I feel like there's like two, it's almost like two separate worlds. It's like the black families, correct? We'll say like out of all families, black families, if they do have a black deaf or hard hearing child, most of them don't sign. For those who do attend an institute, most parents learn sign. I don't, I mean, it obviously it's not equal when it comes to black, deaf, and then deaf Caucasian identifying. But looking back, I think, especially for like education, for a deaf and hard of hearing world, some were mainstreamed in school, which had an effect on their language. Hello, hello, everyone. E hola, hola. Welcome to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show. I'm your sis, Melanie White Evans. I'm a bilingual pediatric speech language pathologist and cultural compatibility consultant here to learn with you and discuss more ways we can uplift culturally diverse communities in our professions in day-to-day lives. This podcast is for you if you're ready to address the disparities in the United States healthcare and academic systems and are looking for more ways you can be culturally competent in your careers. Tune in weekly as I introduce mind-shifting topics that will support service-based professionals and students alike on our cultural competency journeys. Let's get into today's episode. One of the very first steps on our cultural competency journeys is to challenge our implicit biases, right? We hear that all the time, but no one talks about exactly how we can challenge our implicit biases. That's why I created the Cultural Responsiveness Glossary so we can do just that. This glossary is packed with inclusive terms and definitions relating to diverse communities, including Black, Indigenous, people of color, disabled community from the deaf and hard of hearing, physical disabilities and mental disabilities. And you will see terms in respective flags to honor the diverse identities within the LGBTQIA community. By getting the Cultural Responsiveness Glossary today, you not only will be empowered with inclusive terms to better connect with your diverse clients and colleagues, but you'll also receive reflective questions necessary to let go of those implicit biases that are ready to be released. To celebrate Deaf and Hard of Hearing Month in the month of September, I am offering 10% off this product at the Pediatric Speech Sister Shop. Just type in ASL10, that's American Sign Language Abbreviated, at checkout for 10% off so you can take another step to release implicit biases today. That's ASL10. I'll include the link in the show notes. Until then, let's get into today's episode. I am so excited that y'all came back to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show today because we are celebrating Deaf and Hard of Hearing Awareness Month in the month of September. And today I want to show you the first part of a three-part series where I have David Player. He is a member of the Black Deaf and Hard of Hearing community, and he is just a wealth of knowledge. Go ahead and buckle up your seatbelts. That was kind of a joke because I know that a lot of y'all are actually in the car right now listening to this episode. And you will just learn so much, not only about what it's like to be Black and Deaf when it comes to education, when it comes to healthcare, but also specific nuances within the Deaf community. So without further ado, 
we have David Player and our interpreter, Dresden. Joe, I am so excited for my guest today. We have David Player. He's going to be on just what it's like to be deaf and black in society. I'm also excited to have our interpreter, Dresden. He's going to be helping us. So everyone, I will be pausing to, of course, let Dresden say his piece and then also um, allow David to read their piece and then we can get this show on the road. Sounds good. This is David. Awesome. Okay, so David, I'm going to read your introduction. David Player is a person who just graduated with an MA in linguistics. Congratulations from the University of New Mexico. He recently wrote a couple of articles on racism and autism on his medium paper. His research interests include sociolinguistics, language ideologies and policy, and critical race discourse analysis in deaf and hard hearing communities. Then September is Deaf and Hardy Hard Hearing Awareness. I wanted to bring David on. Just let us know more ways that we can be culturally responsive when interacting with these communities. Thank you for coming. Yeah, of course, of course. So David, is there anything that I missed with your introduction? Is there anything else that you would like to add? So maybe a little bit on our background. Let me explain. So I started from Port that's in LA. So when I went over to Shreveport, it was a transfer from school, but I went to URT, graduated in 1990s, graduated with a bachelor's in sociology. And so then added on, majored in anthropology. But until that point, the sociology, I had also minored in Black studies. And so that was almost kind of a connector over to linguistics, um, where I studied in New Mexico. So it was a bunch of transferring and then transferred later into CSUN as a lecturer. I think that encompasses much of my background. Well, first of all, I'm so excited to learn from you in this episode, just with all of your academic backgrounds and interests. But my first question is, can you tell us your why? Why sociolinguistics? Well, it all stemmed from Black ASL. Um, I found it fascinating. And I remember looking back when I first learned about Black ASL and been exposed to it. It was a deaf doctor called Through Deaf Eyes, a deaf documentary, I'm sorry. And so through Deaf Eyes, it was a documentary watched, and then it had like four minute segment about a doctor. They were a teacher at Gallaudet, but now retired. But they had made a comment about Black kids being separated from Deaf Institutes. And so signing culture and it being mainstreamed and the differences between white and Black signing culture, it divided classes, divided communities. And it was a lot of people that had the perception that it was the same, and it definitely wasn't within the staff, even within the classmates, signing was different. Language culture was different. And so then it just kind of started a code switch, right? And so then people mentioned code switching. And so I just thought it was all um, fascinating. I had a chat recently with a friend of mine over in LA and I had asked him about Black ASL and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many different like even within itself. So there's ASL and then there's Black ASL. And then even with, within Black ASL, there's uh, all these subcultures and sub niches, even with that. And so even the assumption that all Black ASL was the same was false. And so there was a, a film about 
hidden treasures of Black ASL. And so, I'm sorry, there was a book, and it was published, I think, like 2012, 2012. Um, but people weren't flocking to the book um, until the whole Black Lives Matter movement happened. And so then we saw the need and all of these, the cause for reasoning for having more developed institutions focused on education on Black ASL and on linguistics. And so all this material that had been laying on the shelves had become popular. And so that led up to the publishing of, uh, you know, 2012, that when they had the Black Church of ASL published, now people wanted to revisit all of these resources. But then, I mean, there was not just, you know, much attention on them until we found them necessary. And so it was interesting talking race and identity and how that connects to sign language. And so the process kind of changed a little. The process of linguistic variations, that was just in itself fascinating. And so we started, there started being sparks of discussions here and there. And so the University of New Mexico had a research on sign language variations that was huge. And so then it was, people were confusing that with like indigenous signs and the indigenous language there and Mexico signs. And it was so fascinating, but it just shows the variation in dynamics and language. Now their variation was more on a wide scale. And it was interesting to see their experiences within their lives and how it ran parallel to Black Sign Language. Because the cultures were kind of similar, there was a lot of stuff in their culture that was dismissed. A lot of stuff concerning like race and ideology. I mean, it was racism really, but it was all encompassed within each other. And then it was all falls under the classification of sociology linguistics. That is incredibly fascinating. One question I have for you, and especially for the audience, is how would you define Black ASL? There's two avenues to it. Okay. There's the language that's been passed down. During Jim Crow, there was not much language contact. There wasn't much physical contact, I mean, because we were separated during those eras called segregation. And so because there was no physical contact, if that's the means in which we carry on language and pass down language, we were all developed in silos, so to speak. We're segregated by age or there's also class in which we, all, uh, we were separated, but in the classrooms, we're also separated by race, of course, meaning... Over in Texas, if you're in Louisiana, Arkansas, such and such, there are commonalities between language, but they all develop differently. And because we were not granted the same access to education, language developed at a different rate, a different pace. Now, compared to those who were in mainstream education, this was once segregation had ended and now they had begun mainstream. So from that point on, I do believe Louisiana was the last state to segregate. And that was months later after the 60s. I can't remember the specificities. I don't know if it was the 60s, 70s, or 80s or not, but Louisiana was the last state to actually desegregate and was the last school to set up a deaf institute. Louisiana had established a deaf institute. And I only know it as LA, so I don't know any other signs for it. And so to test your Black deaf history, do you know which state was the first to actually establish a deaf institute. No. 
No? Can't lie. No. Does anyone in the audience watching, do you know what the first date is? And to be more specific, Black Death Institute. No. No. Is it in the South? Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's, south. it's in the South. Kentucky. Uh, Are you ready? Are you ready for the answer? I'm ready, yes. North Carolina. It's actually North Carolina. North Carolina. And we do have Jermaine from Definitely Communicating in the Hot. Yes, Georgia. Georgia, LOL. No, not Georgia either. Okay. It was North Carolina. And, and that was in 1869. So that was four years after Civil War. And, and so it was during the Reconstruction era. And after that Reconstruction era happens when they finally had set up Deaf Institutes. And so to me, that's like mind blowing, right? And so going back to your point, the first Deaf Institute was for white students only, right? And so that was 1817. So that was during slavery, have you, right? And so that was all white and Caucasian identifying institutes only. And so those schools had opened, unfortunately, during slavery. Now, as far during Reconstruction era and Jim Crow, then we see how they started adding in for Black identifying and for those who were segregated. Well, I mean, that's great that it started in the South. I think that there's some celebration to be had there. I mean, it could be. <laughs> I mean, but it needs more attention. It needs some, we need more recognition. Yes. And so that does make me want to ask, what was your upbringing like in the education, in your education experiences? The reason why I ask is because a lot of us watching are in the education sector and we work with children who are black and deaf and hard of hearing. But I can say, I mean, first of all, a lot of us don't know how to work with black children, let alone people who are black and deaf and hard of hearing. And so I want to know your personal experiences with it and overall how we can be better. Well, from my background, I grew up mainstream. That's my education experience. As far as the white experience um, compared to black deaf from an institute, that, I mean, they kind of, I mean, it's a struggle on their own, right? It's kind of here and there. I feel like there's like two, it's almost like two separate worlds. It's like the black families, correct? We'll say like out of all families, black families, if they do have a black deaf or hard hearing child, most of them don't sign. For those who do attend an institute, most parents learn sign. I don't, I mean, it obviously it's not equal when it comes to black deaf and then deaf Caucasian identifying. But looking back, I think, especially for like education, for a deaf and hard of hearing world, some were mainstreamed in school, which had an effect on their language. And while some were academic tracking, I, I mean, I guess it would just have to depend. Some students who were black, deaf and hard of hearing identifying had an interpreter. Some didn't. Some who were mainstream, which is which are um, deaf students who go to school with hearing students. I did notice that the deaf and hard of hearing students, like we had not for a long time had deaf identifying professors or deaf interpreters. And I think most of the time it were, that those roles were given to hearing people. And so in what we termed as special education, 
it was usually placed, the role was given to like an older white woman. And so an older white woman or a white man, but either a deaf or black professor was hit or miss. Um, and it was very sparse. There was already struggles with language, with how we navigate between in our, in, in socializing. And then if there was no appropriate language in education, we go back home and then there was a struggle if our parents didn't know sign language. And so there were some that who could write, but again, for proper like social development, there was no interaction. And then sometimes the things would go miss if the parents just spoke and didn't sign. And so there were many times where I had no idea what was going on. There were things that were overlooked on my part and things that I just didn't catch on to. And so when I was in, when I went to school, you know, I was just trying to get in, pass my classes and get out. And then as we do as humans, we start to become curious of, our, of the natural world or the world around us. And so then I wanted access to those parts of the education. And so then I do remember at one instance, there was a deaf church I attended and it was one of the first times I was exposed to like complete and total sign language. There were deaf goers, the preacher role was a signer. And so then even within sign language, there's differences between ASL, which is the conceptual sign and then signed exact English. And so I didn't really have much exposure to that until I got connected to other students who were in the educational field, whether it was in or out of school. And so from my receptive skills, I mean, I sign more so sign English, but it was, it, it's a whole different gambit when we're talking about receptive. And so for the black and deaf community, the pastor, of course, was white. I mean, I never had a black pastor before that new sign, but it was interesting to see because I didn't know what I could, you know, what was possible until I'd become exposed to it. But it was interesting to see the two worlds operate. So let's think black church, but no language access. There's no interpreter. And so then... You know, I'm like, well, where's my access? It's over here where it may not be my world, right? It may not be my skin tone, but there's language access. And so we flock to where we have access to the language. And so now as I'm growing up, I see I'm meeting families that don't sign in academic settings that aren't conducive to the student, or I'll go to churches who sign. And then we're seeing the gambit of these different arenas where there's language access, but there's no accommodation to my skin tone and all that. And so the decisions are different. And I have to say compared to the Institute, because from what I know, most black deaf go to a mainstream school. Meaning, I, I mean, that's just my experience. And I guess it would also depend on what state you're in. Texas, Texas is huge, right? much bigger state. And so we have a lot of deaf who are found in the Texas area. Um, but surrounding areas other than Texas, I'm not too sure. And so I, I can say LA um, definitely have a high degree of mainstream students, but not too sure. I guess it would honestly depend on the ge your geographical region, but the impact of language varies. And I will say the impact there depending on a lot of black deaf tend to sign more signed exact English. But if you did attend Gallaudet University, which is a deaf institute, there's also Rochester. And I think that's the National Institute 
uh, deaf and hard of hearing. And I think that's more of a, I say it's more of a community college that's ran under RIT. You have the technical college that we could attend to get a degree, or if you want to just do like a bachelor's, um, or, um, you know, it just, it just depends. They have, we have options, but, but Gallaudet is, is a four year plus university. So often we'll see black deaf students attend there going to Gallaudet university. And then there's discrimination with sign language mode, like, oh, you signed exact English and it's always looked at, looked down upon. And so think classism, but for language. And so, because I didn't grow up in an institute where language or education was provided in my first language and sign, it was almost a class system. And so it's kind of hit or miss, depending on where you grew up, will we'll define if you sign more sign exact English or ASL. For those in an institute, of course, ASL, but it's less contact with older deaf who maybe were alumni or post-immigration or integration, which means... I mean, the older generation had the education and background, and if we had no contact with them, how are things getting passed down, right? So it's almost at some points language was stunted, and so then there was no pass down of like ASL. There was, I mean, if we needed access to the language, wherever it was given to us, wherever we could find it is where we would flock to. And so we saw how deaf culture or how culture period impact language. And so we learned that not everything was the same. And so if we think about, for example, words like what's up, we sign what's up, right? So like, hey, what's up? And so we had a black hearing person who they were oral. And so they took the English sign and saw how hearing culture and how they wear the language will influence the deaf culture. Or words like how the hearing world will say, I feel you, I feel you, I got you, that. Um, and so we see the influence in how that language for anyone who wears sign language can influence the culture of the deaf and hard of hearing. And so it's almost like they're separate worlds, but at some point they, the language overlaps depending on who's wearing it. And so, I mean, that's how the etymology of language happens, right? And so it's really hard for me to like, encapsulate what it is to to be and wear black ASL. Um, yeah, it's just hard. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, David, there's so much we can learn from you. I would keep you here for like five days. I'm gonna try to keep my questions as short as possible. Really pressing questions I have really free. The first one is I know that you have a median. You have your website and you have your blog. Can you actually explain that? My first blog or WordPress, that happened just out of the blue. And so my goal was to, tar you know, I was targeting the Black Deaf community. And so really, I was getting like not good feedback from any of the worlds I was hitting. It all kind of stemmed from the George Floyd incident. And so when that happened, I mean, and, and understandably, this is when I was a student. And so I wasn't given exposure or any of research into what a blog was or whatnot. And so I kind of just like had something to say. And so I, I thought, hey, let me just go with WordPress. And so it kind of happened out of the blue. And so someone had mentioned something about white privilege. And so when the George Floyd incident happened, 
we had noticed black people were all in an uproar, right? And so there was all this panic around us and in society at, at large. And so because I had noticed what was going on around me at death, they were acting like it didn't affect them. So I was like, that's one situation that could impact and connect to the deaf and hard of hearing community. And so the hearing, it, it, so we saw ourselves as separate worlds, but honestly, we're all one entity. And there was no real trajectory when I set up the blog. It just happened because of the of, because of circumstances and situations that were happening in society. Well, family, that's the episode. What did you think? Wherever you're listening, I'd appreciate if you left a review. Your feedback means a lot to me and helps me find more ways to help you on your journeys. If you're looking for more ways to expand your cultural compatibility in your clinical practices, follow me on Instagram at Pediatric Speech Sister and check out my newsletter for more show updates. I'll include all these links in the show notes. Until then, I'll see you next week.